Hey, welcome to the Joe Kilgallen podcast, everybody, a.k.a. Kilgallen's Pub. I'm your host, comedian Joe Kilgallen. If you're checking out the podcast for the very first time, this is a podcast where I typically have some beers with people, but I recorded this one during the day. And essentially, we try to recreate the bar conversation you all know and love. And, uh, you know, just have some fun along the way, getting some silly stuff. And, uh, you know, just have a good old time. I always like to start off by thanking everyone who listens to the podcast. You guys are the best. Cannot do it without you. Special shout out to all my YouTube subscribers, uh, the TikTok subscribers. That's going back up again. Although it got a lot of hate on my latest TikTok post. If you listen to last week's episode of the Joe Kilgallen podcast with my guy, Mike Lebo Lebovitz, we had a little, we couldn't have talked talk about it for more. I think we spent like 90 seconds on it in which we mentioned Michael Jackson and it, it came from being like, hey, could you talk about or could you still be fans of people who are like, eh, they did some shit, you know? And he just made a ref, uh, not a reference really, but an observation to how Michael Jackson has songs on his bad album where it's like, whoa, was MJ trying to tell us some stuff? He has the song Bad, I'm Bad. He had the song uh, Smooth Criminal. I'm talking to the man in the mirror, asking him to change his ways. There's some, you know, it was a funny, like, oh, damn, holy shit. What, what is Michael Jackson trying to tell us? That was it. A quick little 40 second thing. I thought it was funny. I made it into a TikTok video and uh, a lot of people liked it, but damn, did a lot of people not like it. A lot of comments calling us assholes and pieces of shit and how dare you let it go. Michael's innocent. Those other people were liars. I, I don't know. I don't know if they're in liars or not, but it, I, I am a big Michael Jackson fan. So part of me was like, listen, I love the guy, but you can't deny that that's funny that there's, you know, song titles where you're like, whoa, Michael, what are you doing, pal? Yeah, right there. You know, stuff like that. Anyway, today's episode, I'm very pumped up for you guys to check out. I got one of the best comedians on the planet right now. Uh, comedian Roy Wood Jr. of the Daily Show fame. He's also hosted a couple seasons of This Is Not Happening on Comedy Central. He's got two Comedy Central specials. He's on Space Force on Netflix. There's probably a bunch of other credits I'm missing. He was on Sullivan and Son, hit TBS television show that ran from 2012 to 2014. Got to shout out my guy, Steve Byrne, who co-created that. Yeah, and he's just a, a great dude. One of the best dudes in comedy I've ever met. Always seems to, like, he just has such a respect for the grind of being in show business and, like, what it takes, how much work you have to put into being a success. And we get into some of that. We also get into the process of getting hired for The Daily Show and what that felt like. Um and becoming part of this new cast of The Daily Show that took over actor Jon Stewart. So if you're a fan of The Daily Show, there's some really good inside stuff for you there. Also, it's bookended with some Chicago Cubs talk. Now, some of you know I'm a diehard Cubs fan. If you listen to this podcast, you should know. I don't get too deep into the Cubs because I like to talk about everything on this podcast. But I do have another podcast that I started toward the, was it just at the end of this past season? I've done about five episodes, I believe, called A Cubs Podcast to be named later which I still might change the name. I thought that was a good placeholder for a podcast I decided to do on a whim where I'm like, you know what, damn it, I got to talk more Cubs. And I just decided, let's let's do a podcast. I, uh, I talk Cubs with Roy because he's a diehard Cubs fan like myself and has some really cool Cubs moments that he's been to. Him and I were at a no-hitter together. He talks about his experience at Game 7 of the World Series. So even if you're not a baseball fan, I think you could appreciate uh, the stories from like a human element. At least I hope you do. 
Uh, so without further ado, enough rambling from me. Let's get right to this podcast, everyone. Uh, and, and be sure to follow Roy on Instagram and Twitter, Twitter especially. I mean, he's really good on all social media platforms. I give the guy a lot of credit. Uh, the dude's absolutely in his zone. I mean, he has been. He's been on a hot streak. He's been NBA jam on fire since I feel like 2014. But he's put the work in. That's a, another anyone who's ever met Roy Wood Jr. will tell you this guy is an absolute uh, just a workhorse. He's he's a guy, you know, here's baseball reference. He's giving you over 200 innings every year. The guy is just putting in the work and enough kissing his ass. See, if he was in front of me right now, we'd be busting chops. But when you don't see your friends as often and it's like, hey, I miss you. I want to tell you you're awesome. That's just uh, the world we're living in right now in 2020. And I know you're listening to this on election day. We don't get into election stuff. This is going to be like your break before election madness that's going to take over over the next week or so. So it's a little break of uh, post-Halloween, pre-election. This podcast was recorded the Monday between those days. And uh, anyone who follows me on Instagram, you saw my Halloween costumes with my family. We were the Avengers. I was Thor. I already shaved the beard. I got compliments on the beard, but I literally shaved it that night. It was a little itchy. I was I, one or two more days. I would have been over the itchiness that you get when you grow a beard. Cause there was like an awkward phase where it's a little prickly still, even though it, it felt like it was pretty full. Um, at least the compliments I was getting implied that it was looking full, but I, my little one-year-old son, every time I kiss him, he pushed me away. And I think it's cause he didn't like the beard. So I'm like, you know what? I can't have my little baby pushing me away. So I shaved it right away. I'm back to being a uh, clean cut Joe. And, uh, yeah, so I hope everyone had a good Halloween. I know it was tough this year, but uh, we'll get through this, America. I, I still, for the time being, have hope in the future. And uh, anyway, I, I, I had a great little run-up to bringing Roy's part of the podcast on. And I fucked it all up. No, okay. But for real, I hope you guys enjoy this one. Uh, check out the Patreon, too. Um, going to be posting some more stuff on there. I know I said that before, but I did post up something recently on there, so... Hopefully you'll get some more stuff and um, it really goes a long way. I'm going to be uh, dialing up the content going into Christmas so that more people join the Patreon. Hopefully you do. All right. You guys are great. Without further ado, here is Roy Wood Jr. And thank you for listening to the Joe Kilgallen podcast. All right. I'm sitting here with my man, Roy Wood Jr. Dude, Roy, I got to start off with this. I don't think I've thanked you enough because every year I get reminded of this and you're the man I have to thank for this. I got to attend Jake Arietta's no hitter in Los Angeles. <laughs> Remember back in 2015 at the end of August. Yes. It was amazing. It was a bunch of cool comedians and love baseball. I, it wasn't just random comics. It was comics who legit appreciate the fucking game in the art form. Damn straight, man. Yeah. Cause we weren't just going to have some funny people. We needed people who are obsessed with baseball. Like you and I are, you had Sarah Tiana who was keeping score which I thought was awesome. Literally keeps the box score of games just for fun. Do you have that <laughs> scorecard? I know she was doing it for you. Yes. Yes. She gave it to me. I still have it. It's in storage at my mom's house. That's awesome. That's too sacred. It's too sacred for New York. Where I am here in New York, there's just nowhere on the wall to put it where I think anyone would appreciate it. So we'll just leave it alone. There you go. One day, one day you'll have it over a, uh, over a mantle or a yeah. fireplace or something. <laughs> Maybe not a fireplace. That might be a bad move yeah. for it. Yeah. But yeah, that was a great game, man. There? Steve Byrne, Felipe Esparza. <clears throat> I think that was everybody. Yeah, Felipe yeah. was the only Dodgers fan amongst us, though. And That's true. And what was, was cool about sad. it was I got there early because I don't mess around. And it was Dodger headphones with a giveaway. So I'll give Dodger Stadium credit. They had some good giveaways. 
And um, Steve and I were right next to each other. And I think it was Sarah, you, and then Felipe. That was the row. And a murderer's yeah. row it was. Right before the final out, ESPN cut to me and Steve. So, <laughs> yeah. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but when the game was over, yeah. we all high five in. My phone is blowing up. And I'm like, I mean, I know I'm a huge Cubs fan. And my friends, you know, they, they text me when a big Cubs moment goes down. But I didn't throw the no-hitter. And then I read the text and they're like, Hey, you and burn were on TV. You and burn were all over ESPN Sunday night baseball, you and Steve burn. And I was like, Oh, thanks Roy. You just gave me my biggest TV credit in LA. Amazing. What's, what's funny about that night is that we were having such a good time drinking and talking shit. None of us realized a no hitter was happening until about the seventh. I feel like somewhere around the seventh inning, we just looked up at the scoreboard and was like, huh? I, Gotten a hit? Yeah, I noticed about the sixth, I think, or maybe the fifth. And I remember, I think Steve was about to say something, and I'm like, no, 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 we let's let's not uh, no. let's not open our mouths. And I didn't leave I my was, seat. I was drunk for sure. I, I remember, I remember that distinctly because that was my last weekend in LA before moving to New York to start at the Daily Show. I know that it's a perfect like a goodbye gift to myself. Yeah, and it was really cool. Thanks again for bringing me along. And I remember I didn't find out until afterwards because I just thought you were being the good guy that you were. And then I think like Sarah or Steve was like, oh, this is a great goodbye for you. And I'm like, wait, where are you going? Because I think the next day we had and that game was like a Saturday or, or something. The next day we had like an official like goodbye party. And then Ryan yeah. Dalton and I loaded up that truck for you. Um, God bless you, too. You don't even know what a lifesaver. You don't even understand. Dude, I got oh to see a no God. hitter because of you. I'll I'll drive you to the airport anytime you want, my friend. You've earned that. You, you got an Dalton, airport ride dude. for life. You and Dalton. That's for the people who don't know. When you get hired at these television shows, they give you literally like fucking five days to move your entire life to another coast. And it was in the middle of some gigs that I had that I could not cancel. Like I just I can't. Because one, I needed the money. Two, it was fucking Hong Kong or some shit. So you're not going to find somebody to cover your your China run yeah, real quick. So I had to go over there and handle that. And so thankfully, you boys came through, man. Well, let's talk about that. Let's pivot. I'd like to get back to the Cubs because you have so many really cool Cubs moments. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I've been doing like a Cubs podcast slash a regular podcast. So you're kind of a guest on both of them right now. You know what I love about you? I love your dedication to the Cubs post game, no matter where you are on earth at that moment, as soon as the game, like you could wait, you could fucking wait till you're home in your four walls. And you're like, no, I'm in the car. I'm at fucking, I don't know. What's the store up there? Dominic's Harris Teeter. <laughs> You're like in a grocery store parking lot. Like, listen, this is fun. And you've heard the game. Like you've been listening. To, it's not like you're just freestyling off of the box score. You legit were following every pitch, every moment. And ugh, God bless you, bro. Well, dude, thanks. And it's also an obsession since I was a child. And, you know, as comedians with the whole, you know, COVID-19, everything being shut down. I was like, I got a free, I've got so much free time and I need to be uh, productive with it. And I love the Cubs. So why not combine the two? And it was kind of funny because someone said, you know, you could have waited till you got home. And I go, no, man, I got to be hot off the presses with this. Yeah. I can't let other people yeah. get the views. They're going to steal my views. So I would, there'd be sometimes because comedy was slowly opening back up with these outdoor shows. And I remember doing one where I'm like, look, 
behind me. You guys could see there's a comedian on stage about 40 yards behind me in this park or whatever, wherever I was. <laughs> so yeah, man, you got to be on it. Straight uh, obsessed, man. I love it. Right. So you get found out you got hired by the daily show right after seeing a no hitter or not right before actually, what was it like? What's the audition process again, a, a show like the daily show, which has become iconic in the same way SNL is for a lot of comedians. The it's, it's essentially, so I auditioned, this was my second time auditioning. I auditioned back in 07 and shit the bed. And I realized what I did wrong was that I wasn't actively listening, which is part of acting and performance is to pretend that you give a fuck about what other people in the scene are saying. Um, so the Daily Show audition is pretty simple. You write a segment and then you perform a segment that their writers wrote for you. So essentially what we're looking for, can you bring other people's thoughts to life? And do you have the type of thoughts that are congruent with the type of comedy that we want to do on the show um, going forward? And that's a weird thing because Trevor's a new host. So everything that Jon Stewart's done, you can't even look at that because you can't assume that any of that type of pieces or ideology uh, is going to be on the show. So you write out a segment, you send that in. If they like it, then you get to the second audition, which is essentially being able to come in and perform that material with Trevor. And so that's what I did. You sit down in a chair. Trevor's right there three feet from you. And you play it as if it's an actual episode of the show. And so, you know, in that they're clocking performance and comedic timing on top of you being able to write the stuff. It's can you perform it? Because, you know, it's still a show. It's not just straight up stiff journalism. You got to be able to bring the jokes to life. And it just it was just one of those days where just fucking everything worked out, man. Fucking five for six with eight RBIs. Like just <laughs> one of those days where you walk out of the audition and you just know, even if I don't get it, I fucking did everything perfect. And that's all you can concern yourself with as a comedian, as an entertainer, period. Do your part. Everything else is out of your control. And that was that, man. Like I was like, yeah, fuck y'all. I'm headed back to the airport. So I didn't even book a hotel. Like I fucking landed at like 11 in the morning my audition was at four and i was headed back to a seven o'clock fucking red eye to go back to the west coast and got the call on the way back to the fucking airport that's awesome and so that was that that's some cool show business stuff right there yeah you know, you know it doesn't always happen like that but that was one where i was like you know what yeah that was a good fucking day that what was, was your reaction i had um i had ryan dempster you know, former Chicago Cubs pitcher, Red Sox, Marlins. He was on my podcast about a month or so ago. And I asked him what was going through your head when you found out you got drafted by a major league baseball team. And I want to know what your reaction was because the daily show, that's a huge deal. So I think people are always fascinated. Like what goes through someone's head when they get this huge opportunity? Did you do like a little dance? You do a little fist pump, do a little no, shoulder dude. thing. What'd you, what'd you do? I sat in a corner and cowered in fear. <laughs> I am I am more motivated by fear of failure than I am a desire to succeed. And I don't know if that's the best approach, but it's gotten me 23 years in this business. So I will accept it. Um, I don't want to be the one to fuck it up, you know? And then you also look at the fact that, you know, I'm not... 
how can I put it? There haven't been a lot of black correspondents either. You know, like, you know, you're looking before me, you got Larry Wilmore and then Jessica Williams was still one of the correspondents at the time. So you want to come in and do something that's good. And then also you're coming in on the daily show with Trevor Noah, not John Stewart. Everybody can't wait to talk shit about us because he's the man replacing the man and you're with the man replacing the man. So just, I don't know, instantly in my head, it was a desire to do well. So now it's okay. You got to start thinking of segments. You got to start thinking of stuff. You now it's not the time to relax. Now it's the time to really fucking dig in and really figure shit out. The one thing that I did that I, in hindsight, I did not have to do. I thought that everybody at the daily show was some sort of amazing poly science rain man level, you know, like who was the state Senator from Montana, 1972 through 1976 go. Well, it was this one. And this. I started trying to learn all that. Like I know all the presidents, but not in order. I don't know. None of the vice presidents. I got hired by the daily show. I immediately start looking at online political science classes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I must get smart. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I don't even know all the vice presidents. And that was something I did not have to do. Your that job is to bring yeah. your perspective to the issues. And there's other people in it. Everybody has a strength. And together we form Voltron, or excuse me for the younger people, Power Rangers. We form a Megazord or whatever. And so that was probably the one thing I did not have to do. I was excited. I was thankful, you know, because I felt like I was at a point career-wise where I felt like I was stuck in mud. So it's good to have an opportunity to at least kind of validate, okay, you're doing something decent. If you're at least on their radar, you're doing yeah. something in the ballpark of what needs to be done. So that part of it was cool, but I'd say that Cubs game, that was the night of celebration. And then from then on, it was just, all right, how do I not get fired? What can I yeah, do you- to not get fired? Because I started doing research on all of the other previous correspondents, right? And we talk about this daily show institution and all the stars that have come from this show and her, 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 such an esteemed fucking John Stewart's tree. The roots extend throughout the cable universe. There's way more motherfuckers who didn't, who weren't able to pivot after this show. I'm just being straight up. And that's not a diss. It's not talking shit. It's about the fact that there have, there are two paths when you leave a show. Same way we talk about SNL as an institution. It's a lot of motherfuckers who left SNL. Shit didn't pop for them afterwards. Yeah, it's true. And it could be for a number of reasons. That's not a knock on any of those people or their talents. My point is, as I started really doing the research on the lineage of the show, okay, well, what has everybody before me done comedically so that I could find my own lane? You start finding out that this hit rate of people who leave and really pop it's not as high as what people purport it to be. So of course there's plenty of people, but when you look at the entire talent pool, it's, it's not as big of a percentage as people think. And so that fed the paranoia, you know, cause that's me. I'm looking for how this will go wrong and how can I avoid that? 
And so that became my approach. So I don't know, man. Fear has a way of taking nervousness off the table for me. So, yeah, no, dude, it's really, it's philosophical in a lot of ways though. Cause I was talking to a guy, you know, Mick Betancourt. I'm sure you know him, right? Mm-hmm. He was yeah. talking once where he says so many people have a fear of success and I go really fear of success. He goes, yeah, because think about it this way. If people had a real fear of failure, they'd do everything to run from it. And you are an example of someone who really does have a fear of failure because the way you're describing it, it's you're immediately going to a place where it's like, how do I avoid all of that shit? I don't want to be just another name of, of someone who took this opportunity and didn't cash in on it or didn't make my mark. And man, I did not realize the amount of pressure because you guys were essentially saved by the bell, the new class, you know, it's like you got Trevor. Who's great. It's going to take time for that whole class to find its footing though. You know, here's the kicker, bro. We only had six weeks from when John Stewart did his last show to our first show. Wow. Six weeks. So at a weird time in America, redefine. Yeah. In the, in an election year with an election coming up in two months, we're having to figure out what I have to learn this job and then also learn what is the tone of the show? What's my voice? What, you know, where do I fit in, in all of this, you know, and I got to give Trevor credit because, you know, he really got out of the correspondence way on the front end and really letting up, letting us pitch stories that we were passionate about because that essentially made us more comfortable. So you're not sending me out on something that I didn't really that I'm not vibing with. It's like, no, I actually give a fuck about this issue. So that means you're going to ask more engaging questions, which are going to create more interesting moments for comedy in the room with the interview subjects. So yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely like a lot of things happening at the same time creatively. And, you know, that part of it was a little nervous, but on the actual night on the night of the first show, um, you know, my number gets called. And so on the one hand, I'm nervous. And but then that's where, thankfully, doing a lot of like late night television and last comic standing. Like I've done live television enough to know that it doesn't fucking matter. Just say what just read the prompter and do the jokes. Like, yeah. Forget the fact that this is airing on 12 different Viacom networks simultaneously and every TV critic on earth is going to try to rip this to shreds in the morning. Just do your job. And, and you so hit it out of the park, man. You, I remember your first one. You had that great thing about if a black guy were on the spaceship, like we can't even get a cab. We're not getting on a spaceship. Yeah, we're not going to Mars. Black people yeah. aren't going to Mars. Stop giving a fuck about any news about mars like every every three weeks they release some new interesting tidbit about science shit in space and i'm like my fuckers can't get approved for home loans on earth <laughs> you're not you're not getting approved for a martian fucking trip dude that's great that trevor was i i love as a comedian myself obviously and someone who was a fan of that show you know years before i even got into comedy i feel like I love hearing stories where people in charge get out of the way. You know, I read a whole thing about how so many of the HBO shows are successful because they don't do network notes there really, you know, Mm -hmm. and you know so much about like these, you know, network shows where executives come on down and they're always getting in the way and changing things where it's like, damn it, you hired these super talented people, get out of their way, let them do what you hired them for and everyone will be happier for it. 
Uh, because man, you, I feel like my first year I moved to LA in 2014, I was a standing on Sullivan and son, which is a show you were on. And I remember that season of Sullivan and son, I felt like, damn, Roy's really like stepped it up because you your acting got so good and you were like delivering the line. so much funnier. Not that you weren't good the first two seasons, but I feel like I'm sure a lot of people gave you that compliment season three. And from that season of the last season of Sullivan son through daily show through, you know, this is not happening. All these other side projects you've done, even the little shit, dude, you're one of the first comics I came across that was good on Snapchat. So many comics I know suck <laughs> on Snapchat. <laughs> I, I don't even know why I had a Snapchat. I stick I didn't know with it, man. That CPT that time stuff was so funny, man. Man, thanks, brother. Like I Sullivan and Son was was a fun time, but then that also taught me a lot about just acting in general. Like I think the best thing that could have happened, like you know, because there were ten there were ten characters on that show, and granted, I was. It's a lot. Essentially, like one of the lesser characters. So you know, you you don't have to play to me every episode, but it was it was dope. Like it was like being the rookie. It's the, it's the rookie quarterback who's got to sit back and watch the vets. So I might get a couple of, in season one. I might get a couple of lines every episode, but my job for the most part is to kick back and watch Christine Ebersol and Brian Doyle Murray and Dan Laurie a fucking wreck shop, and just watch straight at like. We see, that's literally what we used to call it. We used to call it. We, we shot Stage it. Nineteen. Stage nineteen acting yeah, school. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we call it. I'm a graduate of Stage nineteen acting school at the Burbank Warner Brothers lot. So that was a good time, and that really helped inform a lot of stuff on the Daily Show. Because the thing that we started doing that they never did under John Stewart was sketches. We started yeah. doing more. Like the field pieces always could have something weird and wonky in them. Like the field pieces could have a sketch element. But then as the show evolved, we started doing proper actual sketches separate and apart that weren't even connected to a field piece. And so that became like a spot where you could kind of hone in on the shit that you learned and saw, you know, Dan Laurie and them doing. So I always feel like the best actors are that they're borrowing a lot from other people that they've seen and creating their own recipe. So I'm trying to do that. I don't think I'm there yet, but it, it's fun to have opportunities here and there to, um, to chip away at it. Dude, I fucking got to do space force. Let me tell you some shit. Um, I got to do space force and I got a scene with Steve Carell. And so there's this, that was a great show, by the way. The, they still haven't said shit about a renewal. Like it's like you know it's really? been so long. We're just like, are you gonna do it or not? Just fucking, or are they waiting because of COVID? Who knows? Yeah, but I don't know. But I know they're doing um, morning show again for Apple. So I know Steve Carell is gonna have to knock that out before he can come back and do Space Force. Um, the thing that's dope about the Daily Show and being a part of this this fraternity is how warm everybody else is to you that's come through those doors before you. Like, I can't explain it. Like it's some shit that like, I don't know. I imagine it's like when a motherfucker in the Navy sees a motherfucker in the army and you're just both at a food court and you just give each other a nod. Cause you both know yeah. what you've been through to wear that uniform. I saw John Oliver at just a random spot in Manhattan and he walked over to me like I wasn't going to say shit to him. Like I was just going to say, you know, give him a little nod. 
he beelines to me. There's a couple of things you need to know about this job if you're really going to do it well. And he just starts <laughs> running down shit, unsolicited OG advice. Uh, same thing with Colbert, uh, Samantha B, Jason Jones. Um, he put me in an episode of The Detour when that was still running on TBS. And we had a long talk about that shit, man. And Carell was no different. And on the acting side, I can't even explain it because nobody would understand it who's not in the business. But Steve Carell can take one line of dialogue. Let's say he has five lines of dialogue, right? He can play lines one and five the same and then do something different with lines two, three, and four. Or he can play line one the way he played line four, which alters how he plays line two. Like the adjustments that he's making on the fly and it's all based on what you're doing in the scene against him. It's wow. some fucking fuck, man. Like if you watch football, it's it's some zone blitz, QB sneak, QB spy zone blitz shit option. It's like the option versus the zone blitz. It's like, are we going up the middle? Am I bootlegging? Am I going to toss? Maybe I'll pass. Depends on what your safety does. If your safety shifts so. It's for, it's it's that, but for comedy. And you know, fucking, it was people, amazing to watch. I'm glad you compared it to sports because I feel like that's such an easy entry point for people to understand. You know, you mentioned Dan Loria and all these people earlier. The pe- actors like Steve Carell, people who are getting nominated for things or when they do something are automatically in the conversation. They're operating on such like a higher level. It's really insane with like an NFL quarterback. We've all seen that guy in high school. Oh, this quarterback in my high school is really amazing. I can't. This whole other level of things that you see in comedy and acting and sports is just, it's awe-inspiring. I wish more people wouldn't hate on it. I think people are so quick to like hate on these people who are in positions of success, but it's really, it's, it's hard. It really is hard what they're doing. Yeah, it's acting, but it's still incredibly difficult. The problem with comedy, comedic acting, stand-up, comedy as a genre. Comedy is the only genre that the consumer accidentally does from time to time themselves you're <laughs> never true. accidentally singing you're never accidentally a good dancer but from time to time you make people laugh and so now you think you know fucking comedy because you got them all chuckling around the water cooler that one time about that one it was probably a fucking tweet you stole <laughs> and didn't even attribute to anyone so i think that's where comedy gets criticized more that movie didn't do it for me like whenever people bash a comedy like i always feel like when people don't like a drama they're just oh it didn't connect and i see what they were attempting to do but it didn't fucking but if it's a comedy it's like fucking didn't laugh only laughed twice fuck the whole movie but did you even try to evaluate where they were whatever man no you're right you're right well let me pivot a little bit from there then um this might be a more depressing question, but where do you see the future of stand-up comedy these next few years with all that's going on in the world? Yikes, bro. Um, the clubs seem to still be open, and unless there's a national shutdown again, I think the comedy clubs will continue to operate at half capacity. So, full disclosure, I did a week of shows the first week of October. It was my first time on stage since February. It's the only time I was on stage. I did four or five shows. I had a college that I had to do. Well, that I agreed to do. I didn't have to do it. I agreed to do it. And so to get to make sure I had the rust off for that gig, 
I did a bunch of, you know, physically distanced rooftop shows and outdoor shows and you know, all of the, the usual stand up in the wilderness yeah. that's starting to happen now. And so the people who were there laughed harder. They're, I'll say this about comedy club audiences now. They are more in tune with the craft. There's no casual. No one's going out in the pandemic for casual. Is it going to be funny? I don't know. Let's just see. No, the people who are there fucking want to laugh. Same like the NFL. Those people out there, they really fucking love football. If That's you're true. fucking out in this shit, you didn't just get some tickets from your boss. You're not yeah. a... You're not a fucking bachelorette party who won 10 tickets in the fishbowl giveaway email blast. So the people who are there really love the craft. I just don't know if the business model right now, you know, will be able to survive in the long run. When I say the business model, I mean the concept of these comedy clubs that have 400 seats. You know, you can sell 150 and jack up the ticket price, but there's only so many comedians that can sustain that that can justify a $40 or $50 ticket price, you know, for what normally should be, you know, 15 to $20 per person. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, I don't, I don't know, bro. I think a lot of it also comes down to how many of the bigger name acts are willing to come back to the clubs for a while. I think they'll have to, I think the itch will get them and the same way it got me. And you'll have to go to venues that can legally be open. And right now, that ain't theaters and a damn show ain't arenas. Not for no concerts of any larger capacities. I think there were, no matter what, I'll say this, because I'm sure there's some comedian listening that just got into it and is nervous. Um, there's always been a need for the arts. There's always been a need for shows, you know? You know, people talk about the Spanish flu. The Harlem Renaissance started after that. So, oh, damn, that's true. It'll come back. I forgot you about know, that. Yeah, I yeah. believe it'll come back too. The, Bert it'll, Kreischer it'll come suggested. Did you see what he suggested? Bert Kreischer said that like some of the really big names, like the guys who are selling out theaters, they should even go to these comedy clubs and do Mondays and Tuesdays just to like really give them a boost. That way, the comics who are already kind of doing those funny bones and improvs, they don't really lose their spot. Cause I guess the fear was that some of the theater guys would go back to the clubs and then it would push. Oh yeah. Everybody gets demoted down. Yeah. Everyone down. Around everybody gets field. demoted. It's like if baseball just lopped off single a and double a, which is kind of what happened right. actually, when you think about it, the yeah, minor league season last year, <laughs> it's like that, that works um, because it keeps the clubs open in the long run. But then the question becomes if the bigger name acts play on a Monday, Tuesday, the guys who are selling, who are trying to sell a ticket, like I'll, I'll use myself as a perfect example. I don't sell out everywhere that I perform. I probably have, I'd say 15 cities where I know I can go in on a weekend and I know every seat is going to be filled and we may add a show. Right. Um, Let's take a market like, say, I'm trying to think of a market where I just sell okay. Um, let's say Austin, Texas, which Cap City Comedy Club just closed, RIP. Yeah, it sucks. Cap City Comedy Club seats about 300 or so people. Um, in a regular non-COVID weekend, I was probably selling about 250 seats out of 300, right? 
It's great. Respectable. Respectable. That's good. That's a good thing to build on. You come next year and 250 yeah, becomes 300. But I'm not, I've never sold that club out, right? And only sold 250 when you can fill that bitch up. Now with COVID, you can only sell, let's say, 75 seats out of 300. Let's just say it's 25% capacity, right? Yeah. You're going to have to charge more to see me at $75 to make up that money to stay open and be functional. And to Bert's to Bert's suggestion, hopefully there's enough people like me where $75 people would pay damn near double to keep the club open. But what the club may end up having to do is to go from being a four or five night a week club and become a three night a week club and book acts like Bert and Bill Burr and all of these people that already do the arenas and book them on those weekends just to stay open. And everybody, guys like me in certain markets, I got to go back down to triple A. And that's yeah. just, and that is what it is. And that's not a bad thing if we're talking about the greater good of the, of the craft and the business. But I'm also on a fucking television show and I have money to kite me in between. When we, when you and I both know that comedy is sustained by the guys on the road, the comedy clubs are sustained. You know, I was a road comic for a decade before I moved to LA. I was in Birmingham and I logged half a million miles between two cars. So those are the guys that keep the clubs open, but they also appeal to the casual comedy fan. And I really think that the business of comedy boils down to the person who was deciding between us and a movie choosing us. Yeah. That's where the comedy club money is made. It's made on the people on the fringe who wanted to do something different for a change or, Ooh, let's mix it up. Whereas right now, motherfuckers leaving the house. They got to love you. They got to fucking, I am risking infecting my lungs with the shit to come <laughs> chuckle. So I got to know who you are. So I just think, I think comics can counter that by doing what they can to build their buzz online. And you may, you may see a rise of indie venues. I personally think it's going to go back to the speakeasy, bro. Oh, uh, that'd be kind of cool though, actually, in a way. I, I mean, think we're going back be... to the hundred seaters with like 50 people in there. Sexy, and just keep you know? It. Yeah. That I might like be that, the man. new fucking thing. And you figure out another way to get your money. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let me, yeah. I, I I don't want to hold you too much longer, but I got to ask you, yeah. you, it's the four year anniversary. You and I are talking four years ago today, the Chicago Cubs beat the Cleveland Indians to win their first world series in 108 seasons in Cleveland game seven. You were there, Roy, oh. tell me what it was like. And also you got to address your attire for that game, what you were wearing. <laughs> All right. We'll start with the attire. So when I first got to New York, I was gifted a Chicago Cubs bathrobe. It looks like the Cubs home jersey, right? It's so cool. So I'm gifted this robe. And I remember going to a game early in the year that year. It was like an April, still breezy at Wrigley. I go, well, you know what? The robe is the perfect fucking thing to wear to that. <laughs> That makes perfect sense. So I wore a fucking Cubs robe to a baseball game. Had to leave it open, though, because people assume you're naked underneath when you have a robe on. That's <laughs> so true. the Cubs won. And then I thought, all right, that was funny and stupid. I ended up going to another Cubs game. I was like, fuck it. I'll wear another one. I'll wear it again. Wore it again. They won again. Then when I watched them at home, I'd wear the robe. 
So then I just called it the victory robe. I was like, this is the Cubs victory robe. So this is the lucky robe that I will wear when I'm doing X, Y, Z, anything Cub oriented. Addison Russell hits the grand slam game five. Game six. Sorry. I'm game six. Game six. Like I'm that. sorry. Addison Russell hits, hits the grand slam game six. I turn to my girl. I go, these motherfuckers might go to a game seven. And it's the middle of a work week. I think game seven was on a Wednesday. Yep. Maybe a Thursday. I'm pretty sure it was a Wednesday. And so Trevor Noah is a huge sports guy. You know, he's, you know, he's from overseas. So he's more of a, you know, English Premier League, but he understands the gravity of a game seven. Oh, those guys get it. Yeah. So Cubs win. I wear the victory robe to work for good vibes all day. And I've never, you have to understand, bro. I've never spent money on really anything. You know me. I I don't wear jewelry. I don't have an expensive watch. I drove a Kia Sorento. Before that, I had a Ford Focus. Like, you wore jeans to the batting cages once. I mean, you went to the <laughs> yes. batting cages. You wore jeans. I'm like, maybe Roy doesn't have sweatpants. Maybe he doesn't have some windbreakers. He's I just don't jeans. care. I, just, I knew <laughs> I wasn't going to hit all of those balls. And so I walk into work. It's 9 a.m. Morning meeting is at uh, is at 9.30. And so I walk into, you know, the building and Trevor just stares at me. He goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm, what do you mean? He goes, why are you still here? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, are, those, are you not a Cubs fan? I go, yes. He goes, are the Cubs not on the brink of doing something they haven't done in over a century? I say, yes. He goes, again. Why are you here? And I go, are you fucking serious? He goes, leave now before everybody knows. And then they want the same concessions when their team gets to the championship. <laughs> it's a great boss. So I hop on StubHub. I buy an outfield seat, 10 rows back. I got it. I hate to say the price, but, pe- but people always, you want to know what the ticket costs. Say it. <laughs> $2,100. Wow. $2,100 fucking dollars. But I've never, Joe, you know me. I've never, I don't wear nice sneakers. I wear very average. I wear sneakers that are nice enough to not get picked on <laughs> when I'm out in public, but I don't collect shit. I fucking still have an iPhone 8 as of this conversation. Like, but that 2100, man, that was the best fucking money I've ever fucking swiped a charge card for. And I left work. I went home and just got my backpack, got a couple things and fucking flew to Cleveland, saw the fucking Cubs clinch, walked out of Jacobs field, fucking smart, excuse me, progressive field. Um, I'm one of those guys. I call stadiums by the name when they were first fucking built. I ain't got time for all this change in corporate sponsorship shit all right i still call it comiskey park where the white Sox play so yeah it's enron i know enron was a cricket corporation and destroyed the lives of millions of people but it ain't minute mate it's fucking enron yeah i got you it's still peck bell to me too damn it (laughs) (laughs) long live barry bunt yeah so um i so long story short um i go i see the game it was fucking it was it was amazing, bro. It's it's a top three sports moment. It's it's easily a top three sports moment. It is the top, and I went right back. So my, my point is, 
I'm walking out of the stadium. It starts raining as soon yeah. as the game ended. And I'm soaking wet in a fucking bathrobe. <laughs> I have no coat. I have no it's umbrella. So none of this shit. And I get in the cab, dripping wet. And I go, take me to the airport, please. And I slept in the Cleveland airport, eagerly awaiting TSA to open so I could fly back to New York and fucking go to work again. And that robe has never smelled the same since. It smells like victory, though. It's, it's a victory <laughs> robe. Well, you were by yourself at this game, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went along, which is the way to watch sports, by the way. I've been Stop to a game by myself. It's underrated. I agree. It, especially if you buy a single ticket, they put you with other people who bought single tickets. You end up making friends. Half Were there the Cubs time, fans anyway. around you? Not really. It was a lot of Indians fans. There was one or two. The Indian fans, to their credit, were very gracious because we're both cursed franchises. So there was no real beef. Uh, It was very quiet in the outfield. And then, you know, they started, you know, you saw what the the collapse. We collapsed in the in the ninth and the Indians tied. And then that's when the Indians fans just started. They were awake and they were talking shit and fucking Roger. Yeah, bitch. And then they just casually walked away. There's a great picture of me. Um, if you search Cubs game seven, it's somewhere in the Getty images of me holding up the losers no more sign that I made during the rain delay and just a dejected Indians fan walking past me. And it's just so fucking perfect. I saw, I've seen that so sign. Perfect. It's it's a beautiful image. That's oh, another thing you man. should get framed. You got a lot of things. I know you're not a materialistic guy, but I want I, I want you in a home, in a nice house, <laughs> cigar, and all these cool memories behind you. Yeah, yeah. And people you recognize you where they're like, hey, you're on The Daily Show. The photographers did, which was ah, weird because funny. like we were sitting left center field. So we were in the um just just off of the hitter's hitter's eye. So all the media was in that pit taking photos and shit. Oh, so they cool, looked at cool. me like, oh, what are you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be at work? I'm like, my boss is cool, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was a that was a good time, man. That was a I good think it's time. amazing that two of the greatest nights of your life, besides your son being born, is that uh are days in which you didn't have a hotel. You flew to a place and flew back. Yeah. Both getting lived. hired by the daily show and yeah, just live. Yeah, I think one of the other sports moments somewhere up there is one of those first SEC championship games where Alabama, I used to sell sodas at Alabama games and I sold sodas during that 92 season where um, where they eventually won the national title. That I can't really pinpoint a game, but to be present for all of the home games. I'll say this about college football. It, I get why it's a church-like experience for a lot of people. I'm not into it, you know, in a diehard capacity, but as a sports fan, you should pick one of those cathedral schools and go to a game. If you're truly a sports fan, like I think you should, there's certain things you should just see. You should see Kentucky Derby. That's on my list. NASCAR is still, I want to go to Daytona. Like that one's on my list, but NASCAR, you got to do the whole weekend. And I have a kid now, so that's a pain and, I, I got to wait for my kids to get older to do a Kentucky Derby weekend or that. But yeah, I've been to the big house. Yeah. There's some great, uh, you're right, cathedral yeah. places you got to check out. You got to go to the cathedrals. Baseball, you've got to hit Dodger, Wrigley, and Fenway. Yes. You know, those are all terrible seats, by the way. I got to go to Fenway. I've not yeah. been to Fenway yet. Fenway's weird because some of the seats don't face the fucking field. 
their angle towards the outfield. Like, like you have to look to the left like a fucking Marine in a parade <laughs> to see what's happening at home plate. Like that's. <laughs> I mentioned Giants ballpark earlier where the, we went, I went to uh game three of the NL uh, DS in 2016. The one where Chris Bryant hit a home run to tie it, to send it in extra innings, ended up losing. It was the one game we lost. We won in four, but where I was sitting like way up in left field, you couldn't tell if it was a home run because you're up so high. You can't looking down. You couldn't see the fence. So I remember when the ball was in the air, I reacted off the Cubs dugout. I saw the ball in the air and I looked to the Cubs dugout and I saw them put their arms up and I'm like, home run. And people are like, are you sure? I'm like, yes. And then that's when you saw Bryant start to trot around the bases. And then everyone, yeah. ah, you know, and I'm like, why did that's a modern stadium. Fenway was built in 1912. So I get it there, but a modern stadium, get your shit together. You know, you think Bryant stays or you think he's gone? I think, I think he's, he's gone sadly. Cause I, I, I love the guy. It was just a bad timing. Um, as as a as a dude, when, yeah, they, I'm sure. when they kept him, when they kept him in Iowa for that extra two weeks or whatever yeah. that was in sixteen, I was like, it's gonna come back to bite him. I think it might bite him, but this whole COVID year was so crazy, bud. Like, think about as guys like us who you know been traveled doing comedy, we kind of understand in in some regard the need to blow off steam after a bad set, right? With yeah. COVID baseball. When you these guys who were struggling because a lot of big names had bad years this season, yeah, Javi had a tough time. Javi had a terrible year, and then like Nolan Arenado on the other side, and a few guys in Boston, even Corey Seager before the playoffs had a rough year. Not Corey Seager, uh, Bellinger, uh, Christian Yelich had a terrible year. Anyway, though, in a typical season when things aren't going well, you do a little slump buster action, or you go like, "Hey, let's go to the casino tonight. Let's let's go to a bar. Let's forget about all this stuff." But you can't do that during COVID. People would take your picture going, hey, we saw so-and-so at Paris Club. We saw this guy over here, like, losing yeah, a craps table. Like they did the Cardinals. Yeah, they went to the Ozarks, which is just like <laughs> meth city. Why would you even do that? Anyway, um, it just, or at least the Ozarks TV show makes me think that. Uh, but I cool. kind of felt bad for some of the athletes in the sense because they had to, like, just go dwell on it in their hotel. And baseball is such a mental sport, too. You go 0 for 12, all of a sudden you're like, am I ever going to get hit again? And I think that really yeah. compounded things in a two month season too. You get a bad 15 game start. You're thinking, well, well crap. If I don't turn things around soon, I'm not going to hit 300 this year. And then it's, it just, it just, it gets in your head even more. Yeah. So yeah. That's I, I know that Lester is probably gone. I saw that article the other day or whatever, where he bought, was it like $30,000 worth of beer? Like yeah. The, it beer. came out today. Lester did. <laughs> I think it was like almost $40,000 worth of Miller lights, which was really a class move. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's gone. It's, <laughs> like, yeah, that's a, that's it seems that way. He could get more money somewhere else, and the Cubs are reshuffling some stuff. But I still think they're going to aim to be competitive. It's just they're going to have a different look to them. Like the money, if Bryant goes, that's twenty million freed up, um, and then they could get a guy like they could get like a Justin Turner for like twelve or thirteen million because he's older now. He's more of a contact bat, so less strikeouts. I think they're kind of looking to go that route. They could have Tommy Lastella back, who's a big contact guy who hits fastballs well. So even though they're going to like lose a couple guys that we've all known and loved from the World Series team, I think they'll still aim to be competitive, just structurally different, you know? Yeah, it's all one long delayed goodbye. That's what sports is anyway. Yeah, it's you always need such to a look beautiful metaphor for life because sooner or later, this guy is not going to be wearing your team shirt anymore. Yeah, bands Ooh. break up. Teams that you love break up. And, I mean, I'll always worship this team. It's important to learn. Yeah. That's what I think kids should have. They should have a favorite band, a favorite player, and a favorite pet. They will all <laughs> let them down. 
<laughs> you know what's funny about that, dude? Here, this was this is more for you. I've told my listeners this a few times. My three-year-old son, and I'll let you go. But again, thanks, Roy, so yeah, much yeah, for being yeah. the podcast. My three-year-old son loves the Beatles. He has no what? idea they broke up 50 years ago. Oh no. He doesn't know John Lennon died. My wife was oh. my, wife, my wife said, like, hey, what year did John Lennon die? And my three year old goes, John Lennon died. I'm like, no, she's I'm like, what are you doing? I don't oh. want to. Dude, I skipped the scene in Lion King when Mufasa dies. I just am not ready for these conversations. He's three. So oh, one no. day it's gonna be a, a rough, uh, it's gonna be a rough week around this house. Bro, my son knows about death, bro. He loved you know what his favorite favorite animal is? The Venus flytrap. Really? And That's he, cool. He loves carnivorous plants. So he fly traps, <laughs> pitcher plants. There's one called the honeydew that fucking rolls insects up like a burrito. So the concept of death, like he turned to me one day, he goes, after it eats it, where's its stomach? And so now as a father, I can't lie to him. So I have to go, well, son, the Venus flytrap sucks the juice out of the, the body. And then the empty shell of an insect falls to the ground when it opens its mouth anew for a new victim. And he went, oh, okay. Like just processed it and kept it moving. And I don't know if I'm raising like a regular child or fucking Dexter Morgan over here. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're doing it right. I'm going to have to face this conversation head on. If he asks me, I'll tell him bands break up. Um, famous people should have protection when they walk around New York City in 1980. I'll have to <laughs> break it all down for him. But uh, Roy, man, dude, where's like, what's the best platform people should follow you on? Twitter, Instagram? What do you think? I probably talk the most shit on Twitter. Don't bother me on Facebook. I only check that like three times a month. Yeah, um, I, I barely go on that too. Instagram yeah. is fine, but I like Twitter because it's just more interactive and day to day. It's more conversational. I'm more conversational than I am visual. And everyone, yeah, everyone check out Roy on Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And he's also got a bunch of great comedy specials. Uh, your your uh, father figure was the name of your, what was that, two comedy that specials the first ago? One. That was the, that first, was the one. first one. And then the second one was No One Loves You. No One Loves You. There we go. Uh, both of them are probably available via the Comedy Central app, I believe. Yeah, I should have done my are. homework on that they one. Um, There's a bunch of clips of it together on YouTube. Just watch it all on YouTube, put it together in your head, reassemble it. There you go. Awesome. Dude, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon and um hopefully the election goes smoothly for you guys. I know it's got to be um a crazy time at the Daily Show right now. We'll come back to that another time. Yeah. Another time. Yeah, we'll do another we'll podcast in the future. <laughs> All right, dude, you're the best, man. Thanks All right, again. Bro. Yeah, man.